0: Ellis, they are not going to discriminate against us. Could someone, no one has been able to explain to me how government is going to not discriminate against Aboriginal people. To me, the only way that, that that they are going to do that is mainstream everything. So that then they can say we are not being discriminatory because we're doing it right across the board. To all Australians, they are not. They are targeting us. This is the final nail in the coffin. If we we agree to this, we are being pushed down a road where we will never come back from as a people. They want to take us down a one-way road to hell. And And they are doing it with a skip in in their feet and a smile on their face. They are committing fraud. As far as I am concerned, they are traitors to Aboriginal people right across this country. They talk about truth. Truth is not happening in this conference here. People's voices are being silenced. They are not listening to the people. They are hearing, but they are not listening. This whole process has been predetermined and what they want out of it, all they wanted us to do was be their rubber stamp. And I am not a rubber stamp for anyone. I come here to represent the Wiradjuri people and I am not going to sell our rights away, our sovereignty. That is the only thing that government wants to take. That is what they are after to put the final nail in our political future in this country so that we will always be the slave in this country. We'll always live in fourth world conditions if we accept this process the way it is. We have to come together as a people, grassroots people, people that live in our communities, not people that live in white man's mansions in their opulent suburbs we want our all we are saying we want to survive but we want to survive on our terms we are not looking for any more government handouts we want the resources to support and maintain ourselves so that we can build some sort of future for our own grandchildren because Doesn't matter what happens here. I will not get a thing out of this. I'll be dead and gone. But I'm not going to die leaving our grandchildren with no future in our own country. Sorry, sister. (laughs)
1: I do not accept that there is underlying racism in this country. I have always taken a more optimistic view of the character of
2: people. <laughs> <laughs> I want you to wear the red, white, and blue. Southern cross car stickers and tattoos. All the things that make you true blue. Ozzy, see Oi, Oi, ready to stamp you. But we are kind of iconoclastic, meaning we don't reveal your icons. Like Waltzing Matilda, Nick Kelly, or any of your lexicons. And you beat up on Muslims and Indians, cause they don't share the same patriotism. Well, I will get patriotic when we stop our idiotic commotion from meat pies, BBs, Vegemite, and Holdings. Man, our culture is based on being a bogan. Face up to the facts, Stubby's thongs and poor cats are our artifacts, along with Paul Hogan. I throw another shrimp in the bar, they might. Celebrate such a day when our people didn't even get a say until 1967 when we were considered citizens. Before that, we were on the floor and fauna lists. Uh, let me tell ya. The 26th of January celebrates the arrival of the First Fleet. But ain't this obsolete, complete with Captain Cook and Arthur Phillip. When are we gonna overturn this popular history? celebrate characters like Jagen, Jandamara, Windradine Truganini, or Pemmelwey. Can we? You think? Hey! don't mean shit to you and me. We need a day that celebrates our collective memories. Our multiple identities in unity. A, stray a day for you and me. A day for you and me. A day for you and me. A, stray a day for you and me. Day for you and me. A straight day
3: for you and
4: So we do apologise for um, playing Howard's voice so early in the morning without warning (laughs) – we were both shocked. There was quite a lot of swearing off-air in the studio, but we'll keep that off-air. <laughs> but then me and Annie discovered that we're both members of the same Facebook. What a coincidence. It's um, Party When Howard Dies, so you can look that up online. Yeah, that's
5: right. You're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim, and uh, we've just been perusing the notion of respect and if it really does mean respect and uh, if it's actually a useful Thing for Indigenous Australians. Anyway, thanks very much, Viv Malo, for that fantastic piece of uh, material from the U- U- Uluru meeting. Les Coe, I think he says it all. Um, I uh, a couple of weeks ago we had a little thing about um, Steve Langford sending a to the ABC a uh, letter of um, complaint regarding. Uh, Vanstone, who has a soapbox on FM, ABC FM. Or as someone said to me the other day, the problem with the ABC News these days is that it's not actually informative and it doesn't go anywhere. However, it is being used quite clearly for uh, propagating uh, key notions that are coming out of the Liberal Party. And uh, he was complaining particularly... Uh, about uh, counterpoint which is on radio national during this segment presenter amanda vanstone did not advocate torture or endorse the violation of human rights well apparently that's the case but i thought it'd be worthwhile to hear what they say she actually said and see what you think I would argue that many of the people who are concerned about Manus Island and Nauru fit into this category. They are happy to tell you that they care. They don't actually do anything about it. That is conspicuous compassion. They want to use the misfortune of others to promote themselves as being nice guys. That's what conspicuous compassion does. It uses the misfortune of someone else to promote yourself as a good guy. These people are repulsive.
4: It's like, you know how they say, you know, you're a serial protester. It's like you're a terrible person for caring about more than one thing. (laughs) And you're you're like, what? (laughs) What, you can think of more than one thing at the same time? Yeah. (laughs) That's right. And what is it?
5: You've got a heart. Yeah. Uh, Incredible stuff. I can't believe it. The the things that... um, People have to put up with, and it gets paid for with the public dollar. Incredible, incredible stuff. Oh, on that same issue, it was fascinating. The there was this huge rally, a huge rally for on Tuesday that was uh, set up by the CFMEU, and it was mm. a national rally. And in Victoria, it in Melbourne, it completely. It was so massive that the uh channel 7 and channel 9 had to t- they couldn't they were compelled to take a photograph of it and put some snippets into their uh promos um uh, because I was watching to check to see what effect it had and i was really amazed by what happened the abc because the abc did exactly the same at this time in its non-reporting of the workers rallies as they did the last time. The last time the sister rally was Enough's Enough, which happened in March, right? Mm. February, March. And it was very big, but this one on Tuesday was bigger. Now, what was fascinating, fascinating was that last time, the, uh, they didn't report the rally. They led with uh, the government pol- federal government policy on energy security all about gas and how, you know, the prices are going over the uh, uh, um, over the top and we're really insecure and the government's going to take the lead and come up with a plan.
4: I thought it was because we were short of energy because we were selling too much of it overseas. Well, that's Well, right. Right. not we because of what I say. <laughs> not, the me. Company, okay. not me. Not <laughs> <laughs> um, I have barely enough energy to get up and come to 3CR <laughs> at 7.30 in the morning. Uh, no, but that they're making more money selling our natural resources Overseas and selling it. To
5: well, us. that's exactly right. But the government, apparently, according to the ABC, last uh, enough's enough rally time, uh, they were going to take the reins and they had a plan. And guess what? Last Tuesday, the lead story on the ABC was exactly the same and they didn't report the rally. So I think that, that my conclusion, you can disagree, but my conclusion is that the ABC is actually ac- uh, actively suppressing real news
4: when it comes to
5: workers. What do you reckon to that?
4: I'm not going to say anything. I agree with you. (laughs) Yeah,
5: well, there you go.
2: Bring down the covenant, bring it to its
4: heel The 7th Annual Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm The book fair showcases more than 40 stalls and a program of workshops It's a great opportunity to be introduced to new ideas, to challenge your thinking and to meet with like-minded folk
3: It's free and we also provide free childcare At the Brunswick Town Hall on Saturday, August the 12th from 10am to 6pm Find out more at www.amelbanbookokfare.org. or find us on Facebook, the Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair. The Melbourne Anarchist Book Fair is a 3CR supporter. Down.
4: Down We've got a fabulous event happening. The Black Orchid String band will be playing Saturday the 1st of July, 6 p.m. till late, at the Melbourne Spiegel tent, 35 Johnson Street, Collingwood. Yeah, it's just up from the Tote. Oh, fabulous. Yes. So there's special guests and a traditional West Papuan feast, which sounds amazing, and the tickets are really cheap, just 10 or 15 with meal pre-sale or 15 to 20 with meal at the door. So get some pre-sale tickets. That sounds delicious and very entertaining. <laughs>
2: Yarra City Council present Leaps and Bounds Music Festival 2017 from the 13th to the 23rd of July. Celebrating 40 years since Melbourne's first punk gig, Bakehouse hosts Why Punk? Discussing its existence. Catch the all-ages shows featuring Philly and Boessa at the turn-up or Ms Risk for Groovers in the High Tea. Head to Bar Open for a show every night of the festival or catch the smooth grooves of the Meltdown. For participating venues and tickets, visit leapsandboundsmusicfestival.com. A 3CR supporter.
5: Well, you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we were just talking about the terrible events in England, uh, in London, uh, around the Glenfield, uh Tower block. Uh, the uh, cladding and you will be aware if you've been listening to 3CR that actually the whole cladding issue and in fact the imports of uh, uh, materials, substandard materials, as well as the lack of regulation that's been going on locally because it's just too much red tape.
4: Yes, exactly the same language that they were using in the UK.
5: That's exactly right. There's going to be an audit of uh, local buildings. In fact, the uh, interesting thing uh, is for the most recent uh, flagship uh, public buildings, one, the uh, Peter McCallum and the Royal Women's, uh, uh, they've been looked at and apparently they've been uh, shown to be safe. There is some cladding that's uh, due to be removed. But isn't it interesting that it should have got
4: through at all? Yes, yes it is interesting. I mean a cancer hospital. I know. You know you'd think uh, that was pretty important to keep that safe. Well, it's very um I, I think
5: it's that thing about uh the lo- one of the local fire authority people, government uh uh authority was uh saying um, oh no, I don't think we can just accept people saying that it's all fine uh because that's what happened with the Glenfell disaster. You know, mm. where everyone goes along thinking it's fine. I was talking to someone about oh and um, I used to teach oh and And one of the things about oh s is that you can almost bank on the fact that if there's a regulation in the OH&S Act, it's because something really, really horrible happened.
4: <laughs> yeah, so when they talk about red tape, you're actually talking about people's lives and disasters that have happened in the past. Well, they've, and they've forgotten they've forgotten, everyone's become a little bit complacent. Or they're trying to make them forget.
5: Mm. Well, no, in this case, what we've been given a push, the neoliberalism has be, has pushed the notion of safety out and uh, the notion of uh, us as statistics has taken the front uh, seat. So, you know, uh, it might be awful for the individual and their families, but of course there's always another one, to replace them,
4: yeah.
5: <laughs> I mean, we we don't we don't want to get too um, in love with the uh, attitudes that are being uh, propagated f- by uh, the mainstream media because they're not doing us a favour. They're not, you know, the big test, the big litmus test is 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 it is it good for you and the people around you. It's not just that you are, because um, there's that famous uh, analysis that the reason for why people go to war is not because they want to go and kill people as a general rule, unless they're a psycho. It's because they they are doing something that an authority has called upon them to do, and they're doing it for the greater good.
4: Yes. Right. You should always question whether there is a unified greater good. <laughs> yeah, that's exactly
5: right. It's not because people are stupid, and that's another thing that uh, is over over um, stated about um, people in uh, the working class and below.
1: A weak solidarity, tricky team, Lister When we know the ABC is a commie front. Why those who appreciate real objective reporting tell us all the time, but it gets worse. Not only have the long-haired commie greenies, uncontrollable left ideologues like Amanda Millstone and Tom Switcher to the right and Nicky Saber their prophets, taken over the public broadcaster, but. Thanks to some highly responsible, caring business class MPs, including Ministers of State, we've discovered the long-haired commies have taken over the Supreme Court bench right here in Victoria, under our noses. Going so soft on, say, suspected 15-year-old, possible, maybe, perhaps terrorists... Possibly something as heinous as going to the Thessalonians on their computer and looking up terrorist, but some of them could be back on the streets in as little as 25 or 30 years. A judicial disgrace, leftist ideology displacing justice, and I've got to say that but for these socially conscious, responsible, caring business class MPs, we'd have had no idea. It came like a bolt from the blue. Our false impression of the bench was based on subjective observations like what they said and what they did and who they were, showing how devious these commies are dragged before a kangaroo court of these judicial Marxists, the responsible MPs argued they were exercising their right to free speech. And anyway, how could one commit contempt by using that free speech to point out how contemptible the Supreme Court bench is? And the government to a person argued that a contempt charge would be an attack on that critical right to free speech. Then, five days later... As evil union boss John Setka criticised the Smash the Union's Jackboots Commission and its non ideological thought police just doing their job, the very same government defenders of free speech called for John to be charged with contempt. Nothing like a bit of consistency. But no, no inconsistency, because that call for a contempt charge and that great believer in the law, former Free Kills the Workers partner and now Minister for Caring Business, Class Relations, Macaya, cost the Workers, promptly and promptly referred the Setka contempt and let's not even waste time saying it's alleged to the sorry, the police, the the very police, Setka also alleged were puppets of the government. So he's guaranteed a fair hearing. No inconsistency, because another responsible, caring business class MP, Western Troubler, was his Senator Dean Smythe, the Workers, wrote a so-called think piece calling for greater controls over evil unions, because as the law stands, he wrote, evil unions have too many privileges, which certainly makes the mind boggle. The leader of the Jack Boots pact, Nigel Hodge Kissed the Bosses, told us Jack Boots inspectors and he had been intimidated and threatened by evil workers. These threatened people are just going about their lawful business of smashing the evil unions. The Jack Boots Commission is totally opposed to any form of intimidation and threat. On that matter, and on consistency, righteous anger at injustice, at cruelty, at the blatant disregard for human rights from U.S. of the U.N., of the U.S. of the World Secretary for World State, Rex Killamson, over the young man sent back from North Korea in a coma who died this week. He attacked the brilliant, great, and beloved third generation of the brilliant, great, and beloved first family, the only great and beloved family brilliant enough to run the place. They jail them, brutalize them, and send them home to die. He was aghast at such inhumanity. The audience knew immediately he was not talking about Guantanamo, for there is a big difference. The U.S. of stops. It's sending them home to die. It just jails them, brutalizes them, and doesn't send them home to die. Keeps them locked up for the term of, and there's another big difference. The U.S.O.B. denies human rights in defense of liberty, freedom, and democracy, in defense of the law. Who'd have thought, speaking of the US of, we'd get a US of big supremo who makes that monumental moron George W. Bash the Workers look like Mensa material? As Donald's great legal mind, choice for Attorney General Mike Petty, or oh sorry, Mike Petty Sessions, explained to a Senate hearing why he couldn't answer one of the myriad of questions he couldn't answer, falling back on executive privilege a sort of Senate hearing version of The Refuge of the Scoundrels. The President must be free to make a full and intelligent choice about executive privilege, he told them. Now, tough one, Mister, but I think you'll spot the answer. Which bit of full and intelligent makes that impossible? Speaking of intelligent, poor old Donald came out last week backing his liberty, freedom and democracy loving, brimming with train killer merchandise, very, very close friend Saudi's attack on Qatar, agreeing Qatar was a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Bad, very bad. A threat to world peace and oh, how the US of hate's threats to world peace. That's why it goes all over the world to fight for that peace. Anyway, poor old Donald attacked Qatar, and some courageous lucky had to tell him, the US op has one of its million or so bases around the world in Qatar, critical to the endless fight for peace. While yet again a White House spokesperson explained poor Donald had been taken out of context by the fake news media who quoted him saying Qatar was a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Bad, very bad. When the big supremo said Qatar is a dangerous exporter of terrorism, quite obviously he wasn't saying Qatar is a dangerous exporter of terrorism. Uh, Then what did he mean? The President must be free to make a full and intelligent choice about executive privilege. Hmm, bloody useful that. Given we've been brimming with clear thinking and logic this morning, we can't conclude without reference to the ongoing perpetual contribution to clear thinking and logic by Deputy Big Supremo and Hayseed and Sheepshit Party Supremo Barnacle. This week, this advocate of government privatising anything that moves that makes a neat little profit has advocated that the government should finance, not privatise, but invest in, wait for it, invest in, coal-fired power stations. Then Malcolm followed sorry, suit. Even the private sector they love isn't that stupid, although they did order the government to leave the energy crisis to the market. We got you into it. And we'll get you out of it, they promised. Oh, but clean coal, of course. Well, a bit cleaner than dirty coal, which is the oxymoronic clean coal, emphasis on the last three syllables. As we've said before, Barnacle's doctrine in, but before, Barnacle's doctrine in stupidity is working a treat. And as that appalling hoonson of the misnomed one notion the real title clearly should be no notion, as appalling bast in the glory of her doctorate in stupidity, it struck me, imagine one of those telly so-called entertainment quiz shows featuring Barnacle and that appalling they despair of ever winding up the program as they attempt to break the nil-all deadlock. Anyway Appalling maintained her academic research in this area declaring autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom. Must be confined to institutions for the insane because Appalling knows physical disability correlates to utter stupidity, which is why we have to yell at anyone with any sort of disability. Confine them to the Stephen Hawking Institute for Kids with Disability. But then, like Donald, she now says she was taken out of context. Autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom does not mean autistic kids and kids with disabilities should not be allowed anywhere near a classroom. And there was this Lord Rupert of Wapping Sin headline, Hoon's son's discipline call. And I thought, Maybe she's changed jobs that appalling less than Madame L. But no, she wants the less restored in all classrooms. Discipline is essential. No allow. But then maybe she just bears a grudge against education because appalling is a prime example of how an education system can totally fail some people. Mention up front those who appreciate real objective reporting and what better example than P won yesterday's Lord Rupert of Whopping Sin? Travis takes break screaming at us, a footballer fighting a quote mental health battle and pointers. Footy's new frontier, hawk's stun crows. Best of the super draft, that, that's football as well. Corby's cruel twist, poor Chappelle. Polly's crack Polly's cracker pay deal all routed out with a McDonald's salt, sugar and fat junk food ad. And while not downplaying mental health as a serious issue, I'm not sure they were the most important events in the whole world, here and overseas, given what's going on. But then Lord Rupert has years of understanding what real news is and more particularly what real news isn't, isn't fit to print. And finally, also yesterday, True Blue Aussie Capitalist Review P1 Act of economic vandalism backed up by editorial South Aussie's Great Bank Robbery Nothing less than the debauchery of the political system it preached. Bloody socialist government South Aussie Budget Thursday imposed a small levy on the banks to compensate for the banks' financial transactions being exempt from the GST. Well, we all know responsible governments must slash spending on inessentials like the services they raise taxes for and reduce taxes because while forcing those who depend on those services to find themselves a nice little gutter is unfortunate, economically it's responsible, it's good for all of us. The poor banks, economically vandalised, our hearts bleed. Good morning.
0: Hi, I'm. No, I didn't do testing. Oh, okay. <laughs> testing, testing. Okay. Hi, I'm Susanna Espy. And
2: I'm Ila.
4: And you're listening to 3 e. C. Ah!
5: And you're on Solidarity Breakfast with Annie and Kim. And we've got Humphrey on the line. How are you, Humphrey?
3: Uh, well, I'm quite well. I'm about to be evicted. Oh,
5: um, no. Oh, no.
3: Well, I'm going to be homeless for a week thanks to the failure to build this block of units properly in the first place. Now, there's a story that people will be surprised at, isn't it? Yeah, that's 20 right. 20 years ago, they didn't put the roofing in properly. And you might ask why. Why wasn't it checked? Why wasn't it done at the time? And, I'm, I'm, you know, I mean, I know compared to what other people go through, this is minor. It's only got to go on for two or three days. But it is typical of... The terrible effects that the unions have on the building industry, (laughs) we might say. But that's not what we want to talk about this morning, is it? We noticed that in The Economist – now, The Economist has been going for almost 200 years. It's the leading economic popular journal. It comes out every week in the english-speaking world and probably far beyond that as well and they were responding in an edit well a kind of opinion piece column by somebody who uses the name of the foundation editor 200 years ago he- we don't know actually what his name is as to who does them but corbyn and the shadow uk economic um, minister the, um, who would have been chancellor of the exchequer over there at the beginning of the election campaign... You mean these said, commie
5: bastards?
3: Well, one of them said, the Chancellor, the shadow Chancellor said, I believe there is a lot to learn from reading Capital. Mm. And when asked about this, Corbyn came back and said, Marx was a great economist. Now, neither of these are actually very controversial, except in the kind of mad political world in which we operate. It's <laughs> I mean, right. very difficult to imagine any, any leader... Of any political movement in Australia saying any either of those things, but this led the Economist to say to the you know the mad media over there, "Look, calm down and see what Marx actually did have to tell us as a kind of warning to preserving the capitalist system." And um, so. That's what he set out to do. And he he laid down, really, we could say, about half a dozen points in which he said, well, Marx was right about this and he was wrong about that. So what I thought we might do... The the
5: great man, you know, so whoever's doing the commentary, and it could be male or female, has set themselves up against Marx. (laughs) It's profound confidence, isn't it?
3: Well, I mean, he is... Well, he's not quite... I mean, he's taking on... A number of points, and as we'll see, some of them he says Marx was absolutely right. Um, I mean, in ways in which I think Marx wouldn't have actually, you know, the kind of wording that he uses would have been, you know, wouldn't have been quite the same, but he isn't saying them. And I, but I think each of them opens up a big issue that people around the left need to think very seriously about as we come up, as I keep saying to the 150th anniversary of capital, which is probably the 2nd of September. All right, so,
5: so let, let's go out. through them point by point.
3: Well, point by point. What a good idea. Well, the first one he says, and I'm going to quote him, he says, the essence of Marx's argument is that the capitalist class consists not of wealth, not of wealth creators, but of rent seekers, people who are skilled at expropriating other people's work and presenting it as their own. Now, that's not quite right, but it's very close to the kind of thing that Marx wants to tell us, that, that the capitalist class, as people who simply own the means of production, add no value at all. They are purely parasites. They are indeed entirely what he calls these people as rent seekers. Now, Marx wouldn't use that word for them. He would use the word exploiters.
5: And there's so, a lot of they... it about in Australia.
3: There's an enormous amount, well, there has to be, otherwise no capitalist system. you know I mean, it is as simple as that, no exploitation, no capitalism. I, you know I mean, it's it's sort of you know pretty rudimentary stuff, so he so this main first point is that the the world of capitalism is divided into those who add value and those who simply exploit it and take it away from the working class. So you know we'd give him you know eighty five out of a hundred for that one. Now the second one he says however and this is he says Marx was blind to the importance of entrepreneurs in creating a very strange phrase something out of nothing Now
5: right Rumpelstiltskin spinning it's very straw into gold how you
3: could create something out of nothing unless you were the christian version of the creator of the universe <laughs> I mean, nobody else. I mean, I've been trying to think of how you could create something out of nothing. Now, the person writing the column isn't a complete, you know, a sort of you know, 100% total idiot by any means. So we think, what does he mean? And I think what he means is you get a bright idea and then you get other people to put it into practice for you. You get them to create it, not out of nothing, but out of the resources that other workers have created. So it's really this notion that there's a kind of idea and then you put that into practice. But what this leaves out is that to put it into practice, you need people to make, you know, I mean, even something, you know... In the realm of the internet, which you might say is wow, kind of pretty intangible, people need mobile phones. They need, you know, they need the cloud system. They need all of that practical, physical, material stuff that somebody had to make. So Well, they're not yeah, making yeah and, that, out of and that's the
5: truth. I mean, that's where the word catalyst comes in, anyway. But it's also that thing about, uh, in order for an invention to actually have any effect, you have to have a coalition of uh, wealth, uh, money capital yeah. and government legislation to make sure that it happens. I mean, for just look at roads. I mean,
4: the car and roads. So would it be yeah. fair to say, Humphrey, that it's actually the same idea they have over and over again, which is, <laughs> I know, I'm going to exploit workers and not actually do <laughs> the work myself.
3: Well, they, well they, I mean, they have to put that into practice. I mean, that's the bit they've got to put in practice over and over again. And that really brings us to the third point that he makes, where the writer says Marx ignored the role of the manager in improving productivity.
5: Super now, manager.
3: Now, nothing could be further from the truth. Marx was very clear that you needed people. We, you know, we could call them overseers or foremen or managers or whatever you like. Or
5: class traitors
3: well, you know, some of them are born into the other class. I mean, they're not necessarily class traitors. Um, And what The Economist has failed to see is because he can't think in terms of surplus value. He can't see that exploitation, which is, you know, what you were just saying, that's the reality every day. So he's got this blind spot about, well, these people are just kind of parasites on top of the system. Whereas what Marx does is to investigate, he goes deeper down into it and shows that, as I said before, that if you're an owner, and only an owner, then you're not adding anything. You are just an exploiter, you are just the parasite in this. So in that sense, the columnist was correct at the very outset. However, if you're the owner-manager, or if you're employed as the manager, as the agent of the owners, then you play a very vital part in driving up the profitability, the productivity of the firm. Now, why do you do this? Well, one of the things is you might introduce extra forms of very modern machinery into it, but that only adds more, uh, you're just producing a larger quantity of stuff. There's no more surplus value being added. If you're doing that, Marx is very clear about this, that machines do not add surplus value. They just add more stuff, so the same amount of surplus value is split in smaller quantities amongst larger numbers of things you've got to sell. Where does the extra surplus value come from? What does the manager have to do? And here there are two things. One, you can lengthen the working day.
5: Yep, this is all the stuff that's happening right at the moment. Go on. And
3: best of all, of course, if Lower you get the wages. Off the clock. I mean, if you've got to pay them, that's okay. You can get surplus value out of them. But best of all, if you get them to work for you off the clock. Mm. And we know how much of that there is. That's right. So, that's and
5: right across, white collar, right across to every other 24
3: 7. You know, yeah. I, mean, I mean, it's something that is afflicting the very top of all the managers as well.
5: That's right.
3: You know, I mean, so. But the second point, and this is where the manager really comes in and where Marx is so important in explaining this to us, is you intensify the application of the labour power that you purchased. You make people work harder every second of every day. Now, in 100 years ago, we used to talk about time and motion study where you watch people very closely. Every tiny thing they do is something that you try and get on top of. I mean, if I could just insert something here, this is from about 100 years ago. This is the Australasian Engineering and Machinery publication. And this is an editorial, just three lines. The mechanical appliances consist, this is something that they are recommending that employers might think about. You can buy one of these. The mechanical appliance consists of a chronometer and a motion picture camera. This invention is the most powerful tool ever for the measurement of efficiency, suggesting the whip of taskmasters and owners in earlier times. Now, that was 1913. We're in 2017, and the intensification of labour, the role of the manager in driving more labour power out of the same amount of wages that you're spending. And this is the great advantage in intensification, in making people work harder in, that, in, in the same time that you're paying for them. You don't pay them any more, and you don't need any, you know, the, the other acceler- uh, the ancillary costs around them, you don't need any more. But you get so much more value out of them by making sure that every second of every day, their nose is at the grindstone for you. Oh, d- um, jumping
5: in here, Humphrey, I just yeah, want to please. remind listeners that uh, they're listening to Solidarity Breakfast on 3CR. <laughs> We're talking to Humphrey McQueen and he is laying out like a uh, a card game all the... Uh, the facts about our capitalist economy.
4: And what you're saying, Humphrey, really reminds me of a lot of the stuff that goes on in the Amazon warehouses now where people Mm. are increasingly responding to machines and computers.
3: Mm. It's everywhere. I mean, it, it will always take a different form. Every factory, every workplace, because of the nature of what they're making, the way in which it has to operate, each of them will have all of their particular variations. But as you said, ultimately... It is to get a higher rate of surplus value out of people. Um, and they struggle. I mean, this is, you know, the whole of the management area. I mean, this is why, in a way, Marx refers to these people as sergeant majors. These are, you know, he thinks about this as an army in which people have to be disciplined, to do whatever they're told without thinking, he says. You know, when really get to the point where you don't have to be stood over, where they've got it to the point where you internalise it, that you're actually right. doing it to yourself. That's right. Um, that, um, that's what they try and truly convince you of, that that you're actually doing it not for yourself, not for your own family or anything, but in some way they even convince you you're doing it for the social good.
5: That's right, the greater good.
3: That's right. All all these kinds of arguments. But ultimately they've got to stand over you with the whip to say you've got to start at 8 o'clock and you're not allowed to leave till 6 o'clock.
5: Yeah, they might just like that though. I mean it enters into a particular... um, phase of perhaps there's a certain amount of cruelty involved Uh, what's the fourth
3: well the fourth point is and this again is where it gets right he says marx predicted that capitalism would become more concentrated as it advanced that is we're talking about an era of greater trusts of cartels of the power of the monopoly Throughout, th- throughout the whole of a capitalist system. And, you know, you've just got to look at the last 120, 130 years of what Lenin calls imperialism. This is the realm of monopoly capital in which the sense of a free trade capital, a free competition between the big rival firms, all of that is passed over and you're moving more and more towards the realm of oligopoly. Uh, now, say that is what Marx is pointing to is certainly correct. So, again, the economist, we can give him, well, 98 out of 100 for that one. I reserve a couple of points to say that Marx, again, went far deeper than just saying this is what's going to happen. In Marx's account of how the capitalist system got started, he says there is a process there of centralisation. It begins in agriculture. You know, we all learn at school about the enclosure movement or the terrible Scottish clearances and things like that. But it begins in the agricultural sector where bits of land are brought together, Well, farms get larger so that they're able to be more productive in the sense of producing more goods and more profit for the big landowners and for the capitalist farmers. Actually, so-
5: you know, when that brought to mind, like, this is capitalism's creation myth, isn't it?
3: Oh, well, the creation myth. I mean, if you want... I mean, <laughs> uh,
5: you lost We've a little
3: capital reading group here. Uh, <laughs> and on Thursday night, last Thursday night, we were reading uh, Chapter 26, which is only four pages. And one of the groups said, if we had a Marxist school for kids... Everybody should leave school having memorised the four pages of Chapter 4 by heart. And I could recommend anyone go online now and just get Chapter 26 in Volume 1. And it begins, as you say, with the creation myth. As Mark says, where do the apologists for the system say the system actually started? He said it starts in original sin. (laughs) Some people, some people are hard working and they save up a lot of money other people are rascally scullywags and they spend all their money Uh, And that's how capitalism starts Because you get some people who are good and virtuous And then other people who aren't The notion that some people might be exploited As to why no matter how hard you work You never actually end up with anything That's not part of the story So Marx's chapter 26 Is certainly the most rollicking fun About the origins of capitalism
4: I have to say Um, just a bit of admiration for Marx's writing I'm constantly amazed at how Marx can say so much In so little writing, it's like the, uh, you know, you read a whole book, which I haven't done, but you read a whole book by Richard Dawkins on religion, and he basically says that, you know, it has no material basis. Marx says that in a sentence. (laughs) (laughs)
3: Wow. But then he goes on and with everything and takes us deeper. Yeah, but he didn't get paid by
4: the word count.
3: You know, I mean, that Marx's point always is that science is where you go below the surface level of appearances. Into the structured dynamics that are making the system operate the way that it is. So that on the surface, capitalism can look like one thing. But the moment you get below the surface, you see the kinds of things that we've been talking about this morning. Um, but as you say, I mean, when he writes it superlatively, um, and there are some. Tangle sentences in there, I might say, um, as well, but not in chapter 26. It is just a rollick uh, and so perceptive, uh, really from beginning to end. So he begins with concentration in the 16th, 17th, 18th century, uh, and it builds up to there, that it isn't something that it changes, because Marx, is and more than anything else, Marx is saying everything is changing all the time. The way in which you exploit people change. The fact you have to exploit them, well, that doesn't change. But how you do it, this is a system, I mean, well, for Marx, the whole process of everything in the world, the natural world, the, the physical world, the social world, nothing is permanent. Everything is under change because of conflicts and contradictions that are part of that all the time so but
5: but he as, he as you said he he pointed out that there's a concentration, and then he talks about, and we 're in this phase where finance becomes the rule maker
3: well, yeah, I mean certainly, what he says is very early on that we would never have got out of the 17th or 18th century. We would never have got into the 19th century unless there was what he called a regime of credit. Um, Now, previously... If you were starting up a business, you'd ask your brother-in-law for some money or the local solicitor in the 17th, 18th century, and they might get a bit of money together from some of the local people who'd save something. And I mean, that's how those small businesses, you know, employing, you know, 100, 100 people or something. But that wasn't going to make the whole system work. What you needed was something like the Bank of England. You needed a whole system by which all the bills of exchange could be exchanged as quickly as possible. You needed a regime of credit. Um, and that's the beginning of the financial system. It also has its importance in the insurance area. Um, in the 18th century, it's one of the big ways in which millions of pounds, and God, I mean, it's difficult to remember now that there was a time in which a million pounds was a vast sum of money. Um, but it to get It still a sounds like a lot to, to me. Well, it sounds <laughs> like a lot to all of us, but yeah, but, you know, these days, you know. What, you just need that to retire. I think hmm. would be the equivalent. Yeah, yeah. So, so, so the financial system was there from the start. It had to be there. Otherwise, the system seizes up. You need money going in and out of the system every second of every day. Uh, so it's like a water wheel. Well, it has to be there, indeed, uh, to turn everything around. So what has changed with the rise of the monopoly system, and the two things have to be brought together, is that there's great importance into the financial system. Um, but now, I love, please, I,
5: I, I'll say that I, I I don't know if I'm hurrying you along, but, because it is getting on, but uh, yeah, I do. love the way you've written the sixth point, which is well, I know. We the fame I've got over. to say it though, that capitalism inevitably produces immiseration for the poor, yeah, yeah. even it, yeah. as it produces super profits for the rich,
3: immiseration
5: yeah. for the poor.
3: Well, this is I mean, Marx is very, I mean, people often say that Marx said, oh, the workers will get poorer and poorer. Well, sometimes he does kind of say that, but that's not the basic rule that he's saying. What he's saying is that even in those occasions where we are strong enough, and this is his other point, the class struggle, that whether we're poorer or whether we're richer... Whether the thing gets more unequal or we're able to hold that from happening back depends upon the relative strength of the contending classes. It is not absolute. It is something that we are capable of doing something about, and that's something he goes on and on and on about. But, as he says, even when we're getting richer, even when we're getting a bigger share of what we produce, when we're strong enough to get that out of the capitalists, even then at work and in society our lives are being well we're really being crippled is a phrase he uses over and over again we are being you know we're not getting the pleasure the social worth the social wealth out of what we are doing and that is what he sees as the role of a socialist and a communist society that's the big other thing that you know people talk so much about now uh, but they don't see that it is in Marx from the beginning. It's not something that came with Sigmund Freud. It's something there that <laughs> mm-hmm. Marx, and what I would have to say, Adam Smith points out how miserable you are made by the division of labour because I think you have no sense of actually achieving anything.
4: It reminds me somewhat of construction workers who, because they have fought, are one of the better paid workers, yep. and they should... It should be incredibly rewarding to be building houses for people to be building schools, but instead mm. they're building these dog boxes.
3: Well, God, yeah. And, and they must know how badly, the, how, how badly constructed
4: oh, they yeah, are. Oh, yeah,
3: they do, yeah. You know, I mean, it's not, you know, so that the kind of experience that, you know, that, that I'm having, and apparently from a program that was done recently, 70% of the new blocks of units going up have something wrong with them. Yeah, forced yeah. obsolescence. Well, Self-regulation—that's called. Yeah, self-regulation. Uh, yeah. So, oh, well, anyway,
5: oh, Humphrey, you've done a
3: there's no mammoth. I think out in marks.
5: Yeah, you've you, yep. you've done a mammoth job this morning, and we're going to <laughs> talk to you again in two weeks
3: because. Well, about the Bank for International Settlements because their annual report, of where the world economy is at, I'm hanging out for that. It doesn't come out till tomorrow. You can look it up online yourself and we'll talk about it in a couple of weeks. Fabulous.
4: And we actually managed to end where we started.
3: (laughs) Yeah, we
2: did indeed. (laughs) Thanks, Humphrey. Have a good day. Bye
5: bye. Bye. Yeah, that was great. And uh, next. uh, well, we sh- we are. We've come to the end of the program and uh, we looked at, uh, is it actually showing respect, this respect campaign? Yeah, that's been and we going had on. some
4: Indigenous voices there.
5: Yeah, talking about that. Uh, we gave you a bit of a rundown of what was going on around the town and had a bit of a rant about things that are important to us.
4: Yes, yeah, and about all the rallies on and then we had the week yeah, that was.
5: We, yeah, that's right. And uh, of course, Kevin was right on the mark. And then we talked Mark's and The Capitalist System with Humphrey McQueen. I just, If you're culturally inclined, uh, there's this fantastic thing that's going on at the Astor Theatre tomorrow at 2pm. It is a uh, re-screening of a remastered version of Pandora's Box, which is a 1928 German expressionist film. Oh, wow. Yeah, yeah, with... Uh, Louisa Brooks, who is the original bob girl, she's the one who who popularised the bob that everybody is wearing now. Uh, it's uh, got a live score by Jen Anderson with by with a um, string quartet uh, at uh, that she's she created this score and it's going to you know it's it's. Uh, it runs with the film because it's a silent film and uh, it's, it's a bit of a racy film. It's the first depiction of lesbianism in uh, mainstream movies. It's, uh, it's quite an extraordinary film and in fact apparently it's uh, one of the most screened uh, uh, independent films or silent era films in America to this day. But anyway, you get the chance to see an original score with live musicians to a major production from 1928. It's Pandora's Box. It's at the Astor. It's at 2 p.m. So uh, I'm going to go because I'm absolutely fascinated. I've I've decided that silent movies aren't you know just weird little fabrications. There's something curious going on there. Anyway, so before you... all the censors that they brought in in the <laughs> yes, McCarthy right. era. Yeah. Anyway, we're going to go out with what I think is now going to become our alternative outro theme because I love it so much. It's uh, I don't know. I haven't talked to you about it, Kim. What do you think? Oh, you have good taste. Yeah. Turn up your radio. The one that says, "I want a revolution." Yep. Definitely.
2: I don't want you at home anymore I wanna
1: go to work so I don't have to be poor I wanna gig with my
2: band on the Portland shore Take me to the internet, the world will be fine. With my
3: state of title government or anyone on, on our culture, on, on our land. You know, if people say, Oh, you're going to finish up with nothing, well, then so be it. But at least our hearts will tell us that we did not sell out our country and our culture and heritage for a few skungy dollars. Subscribe to 3CR.